Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. Today here at the Ford Technical Center in Concord, North Carolina, not far from Charlotte Motor Speedway, just a stone's throw from the NASCAR R&D Center, and right near Rush Fenway Racing, Hedrick Motorsports, Chip Ganassi Racing, a lot of teams based nearby here. But this is where Ford is located in terms of its NASCAR presence. A lot of the drivers come here for simulation work, and it's also where a lot of the engineering goes on, too, for the cars. And today we're going to be talking to one of the key people on that front, the aerodynamics supervisor for Ford Performance in the NASCAR world, Tommy Joseph. Thanks for being here, Tommy. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you, Nate, for coming. It's glad to be here. So, uh, I, did I get the title right? I, it's always like the first question. That is right, aerodynamic supervisor. I actually started last year as NASCAR aerodynamics program leader, but then yeah. I moved laterally to cover um, aerodynamics in all series for Ford Performance. Um, exciting. NASCAR is still a big part of what we do, but we do race other in other series. The promotion that came in January? It was the start of this year. So that was a little bit ahead of the Mustang hitting the track. I take it you guys had a good feeling <laughs> going into 2018 that things were heading in the right direction. Yeah, there's still, um, at the start of this year and even now, there's still a lot of work left to do on that project, but we do have a good feeling about it. A lot of the technology we use in NASCAR also applies to our other series, so it makes sense um, to build the same tools and methods aerodynamically, and they generally apply to every every series we do. NASCAR is one of the biggest ways to test that. It's one of the biggest series we get involved in, and we do a lot of work there. So that feeds into our other series. But you also work on, like, sports cars? Yeah, we've got other projects um, in the works in different kind of tin-top racing series, uh, sports cars, um, rally, the World Rally Team, M-Sport, and um, we do some work in NHRA as well. Yeah, there's four or five different series there where aerodynamics is involved. We were just talking, Tommy, the first time I met you, I was here about a year ago for a tour of the Ford Performance Facility here with Dave Parasak, uh, who at the time was heading up Ford's NASCAR program, and Mark Rushbrook, who, who now is, and uh, you had just started here, and I remember looking in your office here at some CAD drawings, computer animated, and you told me your backstory at that point. Very, very interesting. You had just come here from Formula One, where you had worked for 12 years, is that right? 12 years, yes, from start okay. to finish, correct. Tell us about your journey through Formula One and how you got from there to here. It wasn't planned to be 12 years at the start. Um, mm -hmm. I first went out there because I wanted to be an engineer in racing, and I got interested in aerodynamics. And I decided to do a master's degree at the University of Southampton in England. And that university is famous for having a wind tunnel where every F1 team has tested in, except for Ferrari, the past 20 or 30 years. It's also where Adrian Newey studied, who's one of the best aerodynamicists around. So I went there and um, I did my master's degree and I ended up doing a project for Honda, BIR Honda F1. But it was a marketing project sponsored by British American Tobacco, who was the big sponsor of the team. They wanted to break a land speed record with a Formula One car which is a very exciting project for a student <laughs> and also a project that an F1 team would not want to do with their F1 resources, right? right. They want to focus on the racing. So it got handed off to us by Willem Toed, who was the head of aerodynamics there at the time. But it was a great opportunity for us students, and we ended up breaking the land speed record for that class while still respecting the F1 rules, which is pretty difficult. Well, how fast did the car go? It was Our target was 400 kph, so the title of the project was Bonneville 400. As and in Bonneville's being, salt flats. Yeah, yeah, yeah and that's yeah. where we ran the car. We ended up breaking the record, but falling slightly short of that 400 kph target, so we went 397. It was immensely interesting. It was my first foray into Formula One. It was great to work with Willem and that group. Yeah, it was all because of marketing, really. The tobacco company wanted to break the land speed record, so we went and did it. So we spent two or three weeks in the Southampton Wind Tunnel with one of their Formula One models and lowered the drag to our target and tried to keep as much downforce as we could. Really exciting and a really rapid learning experience. For me, the dumb American, 400 kilometers would be 
What would that translate to? Uh, it's roughly hour? 260 or 270, I think, or 250, around there. Typically, obviously, Formula One cars don't race on ovals like stock cars or Indy cars. So right. that, that their top straight line speed, like on a road course, would be... Probably 200 at the highest. Yeah, and it's the way the land speed records work. You have to maintain that speed for a mile, I think, distance each wow. way. And the other side note on that project was that the Honda engine company was not necessarily on board, so we had a detuned engine just to last because <laughs> the engines are not designed to run at full throttle for that amount of time. You know, they're designed to go around Monza 70% full throttle for a few laps, right? Um, so it was a, on the details, it was a challenge. But yeah, that top speed can be approached by, let's say, a champ car on an oval. That's fascinating then. So you didn't really have the horsepower that you probably wanted to do it. So you just did yeah. it like solely like through through aero, I guess? Yeah. I think the timing was good because I believe that was the last year of the V10. So it's probably a record that will stand for a while because they then went to a V8. And now with the V6 with hybrid technology, I'm, I'm not sure they would have the power to hit that speed. But yeah, it was a combination of that engine regulation at that time and the arrow work that we did and you just went in the wind tunnel for however many hours and figured it out yeah that's cool so you mentioned uh you studied that was your master's degree you got at southampton correct okay and before that you studied undergrad at clemson yeah that's correct i um clemson which is not too far from here down i-85 i did mechanical engineering there while i was there it was a good group of guys on the formula sa team that a lot of them are in nascar now working with the teams that i work with so a lot of car guys racing guys were there and we really learned a lot together it was a good place to learn mechanical engineering and a good university all around and i got a little bit of a let's say sense of the nascar world um but then my focus was at that time aerodynamics and then formula one was the best place to learn and apply aerodynamics so that was what took you to southampton yeah exactly yeah and then after southampton and after that bonneville 400 project i really felt like i knew what it was like to work for an f1 team a few months later, I had done some interviews and I got an offer from Williams Formula One. And at the same time, I got an offer from Newman Haas Champ Car Team, which is actually not too far from where I grew up in outside of Chicago. So the choice was stay where I grew up or go out to Europe and try Formula One. And I chose Formula One, although yeah. I thought both options were good. And I ended up spending five years at Williams doing computational fluid dynamics and wind tunnel testing. And then I moved on to track aerodynamics. Um, that was a good five years. I met a lot of great people and I learned a lot. I then moved on to Sauber F1 to do full-time track aerodynamics, and that was a two-year stint, and I went to every race and every test around the world. After that, I got an opportunity at Red Bull, and it was my chance to test my skills at a top team, which I took, and that was another great four years um, with that team, and again, lots of learning, trying new things, applying new things. Um, I spent a lot of time working with the drivers in the simulator and in the mission control room. I think the, if I look back at the 12 years... The one constant was the learning curve was extremely steep the entire 12 years, and I learned something every year. And, yeah, that was amazing. Do the rules change virtually every year to some degree? Or is it just that, from what I understand, again, viewing from afar, but, like, it seems like you get a lot more latitude and leeway to just build what you want versus NASCAR, which is a little more heavily regulated. Yeah, I think that's true on the high level, and they did change. The rules did change over that period in major ways. I think there were three major aerodynamic innovations in that time that got banned since. So the first was the double diffuser in 2009, and that was at Williams, and we had a version of that, which was great. Um, that got banned, I believe, in 2011. While that got banned, they started using exhaust flow to improve the aerodynamics and the flow through diffuser. And that technically was a great challenge. It was a combination of aerodynamics and thermodynamics, and we had to work with the engine supplier. So that was interesting, but of course that got banned. <laughs> Uh, in 2011 or 20 or 2013 
overlapping with that, both of those was the F-duct, which was a way of stalling the rear wing with driver input. And that was around for, I think, 2009 and 2010, and then that got banned as well. So it seems like some people in the aerodynamics department would always say, there's nothing left to work on, the rules are too tight. And as soon as they say that, one of these ideas comes up, right? It sounds familiar. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think sounds like something I've heard over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So I think um, there's always the challenge to come up with the next big thing or the next optimization. The Formula One rules are getting tighter and tighter, and I think they just got tighter two weeks ago. Somebody will find the next big thing or the next best optimization and get ahead of the rest of them. So you mentioned, Tom, you were working at Red Bull, so that would have been drivers like uh, Daniel Ricciardo. And did you work with Sebastian Vettel as well when you were there? Yeah, when yeah. I started, it was Sebastian Vettel and okay. Mark Weber. Weber, okay. And then right. Ricciardo came on, and then Max Verstappen was probably the last driver that was there while I was there. So those are, I mean, some of the best drivers in the world. What was that like? Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, it's really where I saw the difference between a good driver and a great driver. I mean, the ability to remember specific balance issues and specific corners in specific laps. I mean, as an engineer, it's great because the the best drivers can tell you on lap 17, turn four, entry, I have this problem. Especially in that series, you've got gigabytes of data to look at, right? So just having the driver to point you in the right direction is great. And then you could ask them questions about how was it last time you were at this track or last week at another track in a similar corner. And they really had that memory and that feedback. And to do that while driving at the limit is, is a skill not everybody, not every driver has. And I think the good thing about Red Bull was they always had a crop of great drivers um, coming through the system. And it was, yeah, really a joy to work with them and made our jobs easier as engineers to yeah. have that quality. Knowing that if you just build like the best possible thing, they're going to take it and either win with it or get on the podium. I guess, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And there were also situations where we built something we thought was good and it wasn't. And they can tell us that. And I think the team was really on board with accepting that and re-engineering or redesigning things. Backing up just a little bit, you said you grew up outside Chicago, and did you know early on was the goal or the plan to go to Clemson and study mechanical engineering or whatever, knowing that you would get into racing? Was there something that got you into racing as a kid growing up there? Yeah, I think like most kids, I was into um, airplanes and racing cars and sports, and I think it's really a combination of all those things. I wasn't that into cars when I was young, but I was into basketball being in Chicago in the, the Michael Jordan area. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> and I think part of racing is, yeah, you need to like cars, but you need to like competition as well. And that's the difference between, let's say, going to a car show or a classic car show and being a competitor and being in a race. When I think about competition, one of the most competitive people I've ever seen is Michael Jordan. He just has this will to win, right? He's got all the skill, but on top of the physical skill, he's got this determination to win. And I think that's where I learned the competitive side of sport in general, not just racing, but all sports. And then, of course... You know, I played basketball, but I was terrible. <laughs> I'd get beat by my brother. He was three years older than me. I tended to be good at math and science and physics, and I liked those things, and I liked engineering. But it took me a while to put those together, and I like cars. But um, I don't think I was into – I definitely wasn't into Formula 1 or NASCAR when I was younger. I think I must have been 19 or 20 when I watched my first Formula 1 race, and I went to racing school at Skip Barber Racing School. So I slowly got into it. I think I started watching Formula 1 when Juan Pablo Montoya went over – so I was watching him in Champ Car. And then I followed him in Formula One, and it got interesting to me. Um, and then I got into learning more about the aerodynamic side of things and wanting to do that. So, yeah, I think it was a slow progression, and it wasn't something I thought of as a young child. But in my late teens and early 20s, it, it was definitely my goal. 
So you're watching Jordan's Bulls rather than like the Indianapolis 500. Yeah. Religiously every year growing up. And yeah, exactly. When yeah. I was, you know, 10 or 11, that's what I was watching. Motorsports then essentially racing blends that the competitiveness you saw with Michael Jordan with your desire to work, to be mechanical and, and to have that car technology application. Yeah. I guess, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think if you look at people in racing, they, you know, a lot of them not only like cars, but they're competitive people whether they're engineers or drivers or uh, crew chiefs. Right. There's a lot of competitive spirit there. So when you went to Clemson, Tommy, did you know at that point, that was like, what, early to mid-2000s, yeah. I guess, would have been around yeah. that? Yeah. So that was when engineering was starting to explode in NASCAR. And who were some of the peers, some of the names we might recognize that were at Clemson at that time? I'm sure there are people who we would know from the Cup Garage, right? Yeah, definitely. Dave Simba, who's been working with Ford for a while, was at Clemson at the time. He's here with us at Ford now. And Chris Trangard from who's at Stuart Haas now in the vehicle simulation. He was there at the time. Andy Miller, who's at Penske in the composites department. And a few others who were very good, but are not working in NASCAR at the moment, working in engineering outside of NASCAR. But yeah, it was a good group. And I think everybody was attracted to the area because of the motorsports and the engineering that was happening. Yeah, some people got projects in motorsports, some people didn't. But um, I think the good thing about having that group there was there were ways to be proactive about our um, enthusiasm for motorsports and Formula SA was one of those ways, right? Go away, build your own race car, get funding for it, and go race against every other um, college that there is. I think that was the main program where we got to know each other and got to work together. But not all of them probably went to Europe. <laughs> like, a, probably a lot of them stayed around here and, and stayed in NASCAR. You chose to go overseas and, and pursue Correct. it there. What, what made you want to do that? I think it was the lean towards aerodynamics. By that time, I certainly was a Formula One fan, and that was more it curious about aerodynamics and it was the one thing I didn't cover in my undergrad degree so I had studied materials and vehicle dynamics uh, and basic fluids but I had not studied aerodynamics so I knew I wanted to study it just to see if I was good at it and if I liked it and then it was a matter of where do I go to study that and there were a lot of good options I went and visited Cornell I got in there I could have stayed at Clemson but there was a drive to go to Europe for many reasons one was the quality of the school one was the history relating to Formula One another was just to study abroad for a year and see what it's like and that's kind of how that 12 years in Europe went. You know, every year I looked at it and said, am I learning something? Am I enjoying it? Do I want to go back to the U.S.? For most of that time, the answer was, I will stay in Europe and work there. And as you mentioned, you worked at three F1 teams. You worked at Williams, you worked at Sauber, and at Red Bull. And you started out kind of away from the track with Williams, but eventually you were in that travel mode. So you went to every race around the world for how many seasons in a row? Yeah, it would have been intermittently with Williams at tests and at some races. Mm -hmm. Then um, at Sauber, it was every race and every test for two years. And that was very intense. Yeah. A lot of travel <laughs> and a lot of uh, working hours, definitely. And then at Red Bull, the rules had changed in Formula One by then where um, there was a limit on how many people you could send to a race. And by that time, all the teams had built mission control rooms in their factories. And that's where I supported most of my work at Red Bull. I did attend a few tests and races, but most of the race support was done remotely. What was the travel like? Did you get to see much of the world, or is it just one racetrack after another without ever actually seeing the cities that you're racing in? I think every weekend was different, and it yeah. depended on the workload. I know for a fact, um, I do remember going to China and being on the airplane. It was an A380, and we were on the upper deck, and I was talking to the, the flight attendants about travel tips for Shanghai. Then I wrote down a list for my free Monday, 
<laughs> then I got to Monday after the Chinese race and I ended up with so much work to do. I stayed in the hotel all day. <laughs> so I never got through that list. Uh, maybe I will another time in Shanghai. But uh, <laughs> So that's a weekend that's a great example of not seeing anything but airports and hotels and racetracks despite having a plan before the weekend to yeah. see something. Not quite as glamorous yeah. as we all hope it's yeah. going to be sometimes. But yeah. there are other weekends like Australia. I remember we had a great race and uh, I remember being on St. Kilda Beach on Monday just having some free time and having dinner with the team and that was great and even if it's only one day out of a long weekend in Australia it was good to have that time. I know uh, all the drivers obviously pretty much have to learn how to speak English in addition to their native languages and I'm sure there's a huge melding pot of different cultures and nationalities at each of those teams. Did you have to learn any other languages or learn how to like communicate with other people whose first language wasn't necessarily English or is it yes, just understood? Yeah. I had to learn British English. That was the first <laughs> British time. English. Yeah, it is very different. <laughs> and um, Yeah. I think one of the reasons I stayed so long is I didn't jump to Europe and start working right away. I had that year of uh, uh-huh. the master's degree, and I lived with British people, and I, I got to acclimate to the culture pretty slowly, and I think a lot easier than if I had just gone to work there. And yeah, they do speak very differently, and I learned that first. And then, of course, when Italians or French or Germans or Chinese come over, they don't learn American English. They learn British English over there. So, And of course, it's much harder for them, right, learning a completely new language. So yeah, there was some adjustment, and I tended there to speak what I would call an international English, you speak in a way that most people would understand if English is their second language. Yeah, I tend not to use, you know, slang, American slang or British slang, right? They're two very different types Mm -hmm. uh, and just speak very direct and very straightforward. Yeah, and when you speak like that, there's no real issues. And somehow it just all works. Everybody's from someplace else, but there's a maybe a common language of racing that everybody sort of understands and speaks together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One more question about F1. You mentioned that that the teams the last few years had built these mission control style rooms where people didn't have, not as many people had to go to the track. What does that look like? How high tech is that? Just imagine a like a movie theater, but everyone's got laptops in front of them instead of popcorn. <laughs> That's pretty much what it is. So there's a a big screen and it'll show the timing screen and it'll show the broadcast and when we're having meetings, it'll show a video conference of the engineers at the racetrack, which is nice. You mm-hmm. can see them, they can see you. And everybody's doing different jobs, right? You've got probably five departments in there doing different things. So the aerodynamics would be looking at aerodynamic data. The strategy people will be looking at competitive radios and other information in their simulations. So everybody was doing something different and they would use the tools and the screens in different ways. Pretty much an extension of being at the track without the noise and the smells and the, the environment there. But all, all the engineering that you could do at the track, you can do in that room. Is there a little bit something missing, though? Is there a disconnect there that you don't get when you're at the track? I think they do it pretty well. It's actually better in some ways. There's a lot of distractions when you're at the racetrack. Good point. I, and I think that's both true in Formula 1 and in NASCAR. And a lot of it depends on how the team's structured. But I know um, if the team isn't structured well and you're the aerodynamicist, you could have all 60 members of the team coming to you with different questions, right? The mechanics want to know how to fit the latest brake duct, and they're asking you because it's an aerodynamic device. And then the race engineer is asking you how the car performed on lap six of run three, right? And then the team principal is asking you about some rules clarification. So I think it can be very extremely busy at the racetrack in certain situations, and in some ways the mission control room filters that out. So if you need your time to do some detailed analysis, it's much easier in the mission control room than at the racetrack. Sounds like you'd be heavily in demand, the racetrack in that situation. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's how it is. So you moved back here in 2017, Tommy, to America, where you're from, obviously, now living in the Charlotte area. Did you move from living in Austria? Is that where Red Bull is based? No, in? they're actually... They're, they're based in Britain, too. Yeah, it's... Yeah. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, it's a funny story. They actually bought the team from Ford. So, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it was uh, That's Jaguar. the former Jaguar team. Yeah, okay. so it's the okay. former Jaguar F1 team. And I, I've met people now working at Ford that used to work in the building that I used to work at with Red Bull. Oh, really? So okay. They were part of Ford um, Jaguar racing. So yeah, Red Bull's uh, Formula One operation is in Milton Keynes, okay. just outside of London in the UK. So that's where I was living in the center of London and just commuting up. Yeah, prior to that, I was at Sauber in Switzerland. And then prior to that, I was in Oxford in England right. for Williams. So yeah, three different areas in Europe. And then I moved back here. So it wasn't too much of a culture shock, I guess, going from living London to Charlotte. Yeah, it was. It's very different, I'd yeah. say. Um, but I, having gone to Clemson and being from America, I think I knew what to expect. But there is a lot of adjustment, I'd yeah. say, to make. Yeah. Uh, it, there are a lot of differences. You know, what I always say is there's no paradise, right? Everywhere I've lived, there's good <laughs> and bad. And uh, yeah, no place I've lived is, is perfect. And there's a lot of good things about every place I've lived in. I'm sure just good to be back where you grew up, the country yeah. you're from. You come back and you're working on NASCAR. You can talk a little bit about that. You mentioned when you got here, you're immediately thrust into the mix. And I'm sure, you know, at that point, I'm sure there was already development going on about the, or, or maybe preliminary stuff about the Mustang. Take us through what was it like, you know, being immersed here at, at Ford Performance and hitting the ground running? Yeah, well, it, it was great from the start, but very busy from the start. I went to the first three races of the NASCAR season then, Daytona. Mm -hmm. Atlanta, Vegas, and I did a, a few more later on. Uh, I went to travel to Dearborn, so I'm based here in North Carolina, but I do travel up to Dearborn to headquarters a lot, so I did my first trip up there to meet everybody and tour the facilities. Um, but I do remember my first day here in the Tech Center, and uh, Mark Rushbrook said, welcome. One of your new projects is um, to do a new cup car for 2019, and <laughs> by the way, you're already behind, which is true. <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's an amazingly complex project despite all the strict regulations right because right. you've got so many more stakeholders and in, um involved a good example is marketing in the studio right they define how the car looks then the aerodynamicists have to get it in this certain performance box and i've really never had to deal with a studio before so the guys that design the aesthetics and the art of the car but it's impressive what they do and it's been a learning experience for me and that's one of the benefits of this job is to learn new things and it's all new for me and i think yeah, I'm learning how to work with them, but I think we're doing well so far. There's a lot of new things. It's very intense. The timelines are pretty tight, but I think we're on a good track. And another thing that's impressive is I've worked for some of the biggest race teams in the world, but there is a limit in resource even at those teams. Um, and in some ways, a, a large company like Ford, they can go beyond that. And they can do R&D looking five or ten years ahead. There's no race team on the planet that can afford to do that right it's not in their best interest to look that far ahead but a corporation like ford can do that and that's another interesting part of working here sure i think when Stuart haas racing announced its switch to ford which happened last season that was one of the things that tony stewart identified as as something that w was a reason they were making the switch was that ford could help them in competitive ways that they just they weren't going to be able to do just as a team itself right yeah exactly and i think that's a great asset and part of my job is to figure out those things we are good at and transfer yeah. that technology to the team and then it also transfers back and helps our production cars so all the methods we use and try and test with the teams we take the good ones back and give it to our production car equivalents and they use that on the cars we make for the road mustang coming out next year in the cup series and you're working with design guys like on I would guess like the streetcar side, which I would think that this would be a difference from a, a major difference <laughs> from Formula One, where every team sort of builds its own car there. Whereas here, 
stock cars, NASCAR specifically, especially, the racing version have to reflect the, the street model to some degree. So that must yeah. that must be different challenges for you. Yeah, I think there are two main differences there. Uh, one is that the car needs to look like the street car, and that's something where the studio really needs to define that um, from an aesthetics point of view. The second is that there's a regulation that defines the minimum and maximum performance aerodynamically. So you actually have to test your design in the wind tunnel, and it has to fit within a certain window of performance relative to according to nascar yeah so they it and that keeps all three body designs from the three different oems Mm -hmm. in the same performance box so and so those are two things that have no real equivalent in formula one they are restrictive but that's part of the challenge and it's the same for everybody right so it's the same for toyota or gm and us is it maybe better in some ways than you thought you would would it would be because in obviously in f1 again more latitude more leeway to just kind of clean sheet of paper do what you want but in this case you know you're working for a manufacturer and they're trying to sell the street model of this car and obviously the mustang is a very iconic brand and you're essentially building the racing version of that is there maybe more of a deeper connection of like just understanding like this isn't just a race car it's a race car that has a connection to a vehicle that people really care about yeah, I think there's a broader relevance and importance to the streetcar world, which is important, you know, for a company like Ford especially that sells streetcars. And it, yeah, it's not just a racing machine, right? It needs to represent our uh, design and our values and our performance that we intend for the road car as well. So, were, were you much of a Mustang guy growing up or a, a streetcar guy growing up? Um, yeah, I did a little bit of a drag race. And I actually, my first job when I was 16 years old was working for a speed shop. And uh, my boss at the time had a purple Mustang that was, <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't call myself a Mustang guy at the time, but it, that was one of the most impressive cars I've seen. It, it it was really quick in a straight line. It was loud. It looked great. And um, yeah, I still remember that car today. Um, and I really respected it. And even though I never had a Mustang myself, I always yeah. had respect for them. And I could tell that there's a unique sound from that engine. And I could just hear the sound of that 5 liter V8 and know that it was a Mustang. <laughs> That would be one way to remember it. I would think it was also distinctive because it was purple. That would make me remember it, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in addition to the, the Mustang project, Tommy, have, have you been working a little bit on 2018, like the current season's car, the, the Fusion as well? Or? We do have engineers that are um, working with the teams on optimizing that car and um, whatever we can to help performance this year. And that happens in a lot of different ways, all aerodynamically, of course, but some of it's experimental in the wind tunnel. Some of it's computational with CFD. Um, Yeah, we are putting a lot of effort into um, this year's performance as well. Obviously, there's been a lot of strong reviews and and results. Kevin Harvick has five wins, as we talk here on the eve of the All-Star race. And a lot of people have pointed to the fact that NASCAR has a new inspection system this year and that that has allowed maybe Ford to optimize things a little bit more. When you look at how the the Ford teams have performed so far this season, what's your takeaway on what the improvement has been? I think some of it's just a general one more year of working together, especially with newer teams like Stuart Haas. Sure. That's always going to up the performance. We've improved our methods a lot over the last year, and we're able to do some new things this year. So I think our tools and methods are better than they were last year. And yeah, like I said, everybody working together and working harder. You know, we all put a lot of hours in um, to get the cars where they need to be. And yeah. it's, it's a struggle and it's a challenge, but it seems to be paying off. What's it been like working? And you've got Stuart Haas racing. You've got Team Penske. You've got Roush Fenway racing. It seems like there's a lot of people to kind of keep on the same page there. What, what's that been like from your perspective? Because I, I would think like you and others here at Fort Performance are sort of playing referee in some ways in the middle of that and, and keeping everybody going in the same direction. 
Yeah, and I think we would like everybody to work together as much as possible, mm-hmm. but we know there's areas where they will want to race each other and keep things to themselves. So I think it's a balance of allowing them to do that where they feel they need to and also trying to give them the common tools and methods that they can use to drive performance together. The ideal scenario is we want you three at the top and then you can fight it out for who's first, second, and third and from there. But we want to get all the four teams as fast, make them as fast as possible using the same tools and methods wherever they can. Have you had a chance to work with drivers much on the NASCAR side? Here, um, Not as much as I had in the past in Formula 1 yet, and I'm still trying to understand the way the series works and the way the driver feedback works, um, but it is um, going to happen more as we proceed. Ovals being predominant here versus where you just came from, has that been an adjustment at all? Is it harder to build a, a setup car for oval or road course or uh, easier? There's definitely a lot for me to learn mm-hmm. there, especially on the mechanical and suspension side, just the fact that everything's asymmetric. And, of course, even aerodynamically, things are asymmetric, which is interesting. I think the unique thing about an oval compared to your typical Formula 1 circuit is that downforce matters more at an oval because um, aerodynamics is important in high-speed corners. And if you compare the corner speed of your average oval, let's say Atlanta, is 175 miles an hour, and your average, like the very highest speed corners in Formula 1 were probably a little bit lower, like 160, um, now counting corners where they're full throttle in flat out so the cornering speeds in nascar on average are much higher and that makes downforce more important there and also there's relatively more corner in an oval compared to this amount of straight than let's say abu dhabi racetrack so aerodynamics versus engine power is the bias is more towards aerodynamics than your typical mile and a half oval so as an aerodynamicist that's a great environment to work in <laughs> right um where aerodynamics and downforce is important to right. making the car quick Taking you back to Bonneville in some ways, I guess, and trying to <laughs> make aerodynamics work for yeah. for everything. Yeah, that's cool. Is it similar, Tommy, between the two series and that there's been so much talk, especially the last few years with NASCAR, that everything's become so simulation-based because of the restrictions on testing? And I, I think that's similar to what happened in F1. I, F1 obviously was already ahead of the game in some ways on the simulation side, but it seems like NASCAR is kind of kind of caught up on that front is it, i guess are you entering nascar kind of at the right time to apply everything you've learned the last 12 years before here yeah i think it's actually a really good time not only um applying those tools and methods to nascar but also to our production cars because we've got the same drive in the production car world to do more simulation and less physical testing which goes for the driving simulator or our aerodynamic simulations we'd like to simulate more make those simulations better quality and that results in less physical testing so instead of going out and build a prototype and test it in the wind tunnel, we can run computational fluid dynamics and get that answer faster and cheaper. And that's what's great about racing is that's a great test bed for these tools and methods. With the engineering tools and methods, I'd say NASCAR and Formula One are, are pretty close now. Really? Yeah, in general, at least with aerodynamics. And um, Formula One's unique now in that they have some restrictions on simulations, which I think is kind of capping their growth, let's say, technically. But, yeah, it's still pretty advanced in NASCAR. So in terms of, like, the fidelity of the, the programs and software stuff you're using, like, NASCAR's right there. Yeah, and you can say in some details they're ahead. Really? Yeah, I, w- I won't discuss those details, but there's um, <laughs> there are some places where you, you can get ahead, which mm-hmm. is really exciting for me. You mentioned NASCAR being a great test bed for the production side. That's I mean, that's interesting because, again, like, the simulations that teams are running constantly here are then getting applied to what's being driven by 
commoners on on the streets and production models why is that that simulation important like to get away from like the proving ground stuff is it just is it just more efficient and you can you can do more optimization can you just do more maybe on a simulation than you can in proving ground real world environment now or yeah i think you can do more you can understand more so uh, at least in the realm of aerodynamics cfd allows you to see the airflow you know you can turn it into different colors and look at it which is pretty impossible in the wind tunnel you can use smoke flow or um, wool tufts and things in the wind tunnel, but it doesn't give you the kind of colorful visualization that a computer can. With that tool, you can really understand things, and if you do it precise enough, you can really predict things to a close approximation of what you would get in a physical test. And I think what that allows you to do is build a better design at the end and faster. It'll take you less time to get to the same design. So the other way to look at that is for the same amount of time, you can come up with a better design. So whether your target is to make a lot of downforce for a race car or to make a certain drag target for a uh, production car and get some certain fuel economy, the engineering process is the same. It's just the objective is different. And you can do it in a few hours on a computer rather than a few days on a real-world track or, or whatever. Yeah, 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 exactly. The the time is usually always, the timeline is always shorter for simulation versus physical experiment. They don't have you working on any autonomous stuff or anything like that, do they? <laughs> no, 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 not no. not yet at least, but um, <laughs> I'm happy to test them out, I think. Yeah. So it's a good idea. It's got to be done right, of course. It's great to hear that Ford, again, you know, they're a big company and they can look far, far ahead. And since um, Jim Hackett came on last year, we've made more of an effort. Electrified cars and autonomous cars, which is exciting. I'll take the first one that they make. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely the wave of the future. One more for you, Tommy, on the NASCAR side. So where do you think stand now with the Mustang? I'm sure some hard deadlines coming up. Have you been approved in that box you were talking about? Like what's coming here for the rest of 2018 to get ready for next season? I think we've got the final input from um, the studio and all the stakeholders, and um, there's a few things to do on the design side, and then our deadline for uh, submitting the body is this summer. So I think we'll be um, we'll be through that sometime this summer, which will be good. Yeah, we'll see it at Daytona 2019. We'll see the finished product. It's been in progress now for almost two years. Yeah, that's, yeah exactly. That's cool. All right, man. Well, hey, I, I really appreciate you being here. Um, enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for making time. I know you're a busy man, so... Um, Thanks for doing this, Tommy. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime, Nate. Thank All right. Thank you for coming here. All right. It's great. If you are a listener to the NASCAR NBC podcast, you can hear us on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a rating or review if you do so. You can also hear us on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, uh, pretty much anywhere you download podcasts, you can get this one. And if you have any feedback, please send to me on Twitter. My handle is at Nate Ryan. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR NBC podcast. Mm-hmm.